Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talked to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. BZ, you're Jay talking. We're at Thursday now. This is uh, number night number four of the week. I will be in tomorrow as well. 617-254-1030 is our number. I like Boston history, as you know. That's one of the real brands of the Jay talking program. It's history and World, World War One history, war history, but particularly Boston history. We have a couple of folks that figure in uh, that prominently. We have Bob Allison. We have Anthony Samarco. And uh, I've been talking about, with Anthony Samarco about the combat zone. And I believe it was Anthony that mentioned tonight's guest, Stephanie Shoro, who has a book already, Inside the Combat Zone, the stripped-down story of Boston's most notorious neighborhood. Thanks for coming in, Stephanie. No, thank you for having me. Yes. Now, I'm going to start kind of backwards from the way I usually do it. I'm going to ask you about you first. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. So you live in Medford. I do. Uh, yeah. And you have a a number of fine books related to Boston and Boston history. That's right. Yeah. I, I Starting about uh, 2003, I got interested in Boston history, uh, starting with Boston on Fire, a history of fire and firefighting in Boston. Uh, and I've written about the Brinks robbery, the Coconut Grove fire, Boston Harbor Islands, and Drinking Boston, which is a history of the city and spirits. Uh, which required a lot of research in bars, which was a lot of fun. How did you do the research besides trying the, the product? Uh, what did you, you went to the actually, bars? Actually, and- I joke about that because actually there was quite a bit of research done in libraries and in interviewing people. It wasn't as much drinking as I had hoped well, for. Does Boston have a particularly interesting drinking history? It does. It does, as a matter of fact, because it got started back in the colonial days. I mean, we like to think of those Puritans as pretty straight-laced, but they, they like their beer and they like their hard cider, too. And then later so, on, the rum was a thing. And rum was a, rum was a gift from God. Yes, later on, and um, uh, and then um, we the the city even has its own cocktail called the Ward Eight. I did not know that. Yes, I know. It's 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 a little bit what's obscure. The his, what's the history of that? Well, that uh, a political history. I guess it's a political history. As a matter of fact, uh, a guy named Martin Lamazny, which who I don't know if you've heard his name, but he is he is he was a ward boss in the matter of the early Kennedys, uh, and the Fitzgeralds, the Kennedys, uh, Mayor Curley. He was the boss of Ward 8, which was the old uh, east part of Boston. and Sorry, the west end, the west end of Boston. 
Uh, and uh, he won a victory one night, and um, I'm sort of truncating the story, but some of his followers decided that they wanted to have a drink named in his honor, and they decided to call it the Ward 8. Uh, the irony, of course, is that uh, Lamazny himself never drank. Um, he was a teetotaler. So. Isn't it also true that somebody bought votes with drinks and said, vote for me and I'll buy you a drink, and, and after that, you couldn't drink on election day? That may be a myth on that. I mean, I would say that there were a lot of pol- a lot of politicking went on in the bar rooms, the old bar rooms of Boston before Prohibition, uh, the old saloons, and I think that was they were considered a meeting place. They were places where people would, if not buy votes with drinks, certainly go out and meet constituents, and everybody gets around when they buy it for the house. So. Um, that was definitely a political, there was a lot of political action going on in, in bars. But again, prohibition kind of stopped that. All right, now to the combat zone. <laughs> I'll ask you uh, first what the combat zone is, then we'll go back and find out what it was before the combat zone. You mentioned the, the Liberty Tree. Mm-hmm. I need. I always need to know exactly where that Liberty Tree is. I, I, I forget all the time. I think it was on right on uh, Washington. Well, it was right on, no, on on. on well, Boylston and Washington Street, yes, right in that area. Essex, where Essex. Actually, they don't actually know where the damn tree was. Okay. It was a tr- it was a tree in that area. The Liberty Tree Building uh, is on the corner of uh, Washington and uh, Essex. That's uh, the one that has the Sons of Liberty um, embedded yeah. in, the, in the. Yeah, the uh, wash. It's right at the corner of Essex Street and. Um, Washington. The thing that gets confusing is that Boylston Street turns into Essex right there. Okay. So that's why it's always so confusing because we don't like we don't like to make things easy for people driving in Boston. Right. Very important thing. So we um, get up to thirty eight states. Not every state knows what the combat zone is. So why don't you tell us? Well, the combat zone developed in about the nineteen fifties um, as a red light district in Boston. It started out as kind of a rowdy rock and roll neighborhood. Uh, but after Scully Square was uh, leveled in the name of urban renewal, uh, a lot of the uh, people who used to go to Scully Square now gravitated over the downtown area. Uh, there's a sort of a mis- uh, mystery, uh, sort of a, a myth about that the Scully Square picked up and moved downtown. That's actually not the case. Just a few businesses, Jack's Joke Shop, for example, moved from Scully Square. Uh, but basically, the demand for such kind of entertainment, this kind of um, raucous entertainment, moved from Scully Square to the this downtown section of Boston. Uh, it was called the Combat Zone, we think. We're not really certain about that because uh, it was frequented by a lot of the soldiers and sailors in town, and they were often getting into fights, and they were often being hauled out by military police. So it began to be called the Combat Zone probably as early as 1950, but um, it was in the, the uh, old uh, Record American newspaper had a big series on the combat zone in the 1960s. And by then, it was really turning into something much seedier. And a lot of the rock and roll clubs that were down there turned to stripping and turned to becoming strip in places for naughty kinds of uh, entertainment. And then uh, dirty bookstores moved in. Uh, and then you had um, it bloomed as kind of a red light district as well. But that's not what's so unusual about this. Here's, here's the thing. Many cities about that time had a sort of a, a bad neighborhood or a red light district. Boston's the, one of the few, if not the only one, that zoned for it. They created an official red light district in that area. 
And the reason was because they wanted to control it. Seems kind of odd, but you have to understand that by the 60s and 70s, pornography, dirty movies were just spreading all over the country. It was a time we used to call, they called porno chic, yeah. where things like Deep Throat, uh, Deltonless Jones were, were playing to mainstream audiences. The city wanted to do something about it. Um, they didn't want to have this right in the heart of downtown. This wasn't, it wasn't like off in the corner. This was right in the middle of the city. So I said, well, if we can zone for it, um, because the Supreme Court prevented them from closing everything down. So if the idea was if we zone for, for it, keep it trapped in this one area, kind of put up a neon cage for it. If we keep it there, it won't go elsewhere. What kept it trapped? What kept it within there? What, well, was, the, what was the fence? The fence was simply the, the zoning rules. And a lot of it was, uh, some of it was grandfathered because over at uh, Park Square, there were a couple of uh, strip clubs the mouse over trap. there. Yeah, the mousetrap and the teddy bear. We're over there. That's got to be yeah. old school. Yeah. The teddy bear? Yeah. Teddy bear, mousetrap. Um, Jay Leno, by the way, did uh, com- comedy. I think it was at the mousetrap back in the day. Wow. Because a lot of these clubs, they started off as kind of entertainment clubs, and then they gradually add, start adding girls who were taking off their clothes as part of the entertainment. Um, and so the uh, there was a, the, a lot of this was protected by First Amendment rights, so they couldn't close it down. So- they could only keep it in the cage by permitting it there. If people tried to open elsewhere, they would raid them. They would try to okay. get, close them down. But they basically, if you were in the zone area, you could legitimately open a business there. Now, they'd keep an eye on you. You stepped out of line, you could get closed down. But the idea was it was the, – the, the law is still on the books. The law is still on the books. Seems kind of forward-thinking or yeah. open-minded for such a puritanical place to actually do that. It would be the equivalent of having a safe place to do your heroin, like a safe injection site, which would never fly here. If you're going to do something bad, do it here, Mm -hmm. is what they were saying, which kind of advanced. That that was the idea. And in fact, uh, there was an architect who was working with the the BRA, the uh, Boston Redevelopment Agency, and he had this idea. He had this whole plan for the combat zone to be kind of- um, Disneyland? The Disneyland of sex, if you will, a kind of a Las Las Vegas um, on the Charles. So to speak, but the but he even designed um, something called the Dirty Bookstore, and he said, "Why don't we just call it the Dirty Bookstore?" And he had this great design um, and other uh, other um, designs that he put together for a lot of these different. Who is uh, this things. person? John's guy named John Sloan. John Sloan. John Sloan. John Sloan. With the uh, he was he was quite notorious in in Boston at that time. He was well, he was famous because he was a very good architect, and he did other things like he helped to bring the China China. Town gate, uh-huh. in. you know that big yep. gate there. Yeah, he oh, was yeah. the one who tried to orchestrate that to bring that in as a present from the uh, from the uh, government of Taiwan. Uh, and he he was one of the people who tried to um, do some things about downtown crossing, like stop putting traffic in there. So he was very forward thinking. He had this great these great ideas, and he was allowed to go forward. Um, a lot of this was under the um, administration of Kevin White, and Kevin White kind of had a less puritanical view about it. Uh, in fact, he took a, took a walk through the um, combat zone, the, and the press tagged along, and he was even accosted by a young lady of the evening who wanted to know if he wanted a good time. And he said, you want a party, Mayor? He said, want a party, Mayor. <laughs> he said, I'm too old. <laughs> yeah, well, he found out that's not exactly true. <laughs> There's a chapter called Porno Chic, and that's yeah. basically talking about the mainstreaming of what was once, you know, 
Dirty material. Dirty material. Yeah, it, 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 in the 70s, the, the things kind of took a different turn. You had movies like uh, The Devil Miss Jones and, of course, Deep Throat. And uh, even Roger Ebert said that Deep Throat was the first X-rated movie you could take a date to. Um, the idea was it was people were getting a, a kind of excited about the new freedom and pushing limits. And the women's movement was very big. Fear of Flying had come out by Erica John. Uh, so there was a kind of redefinition of the roles of men and women, and pornography kind of followed along with it. And at the time, it was more uh, independently made, too. It wasn't uh, taken over by the mafia. It kind of got taken over by the mob later on when they started to produce a lot of uh, video cassettes, but it was a little bit freer there. Um, and the combat zone was kind of at the epicenter of that. I mean, you, you have to, if you think about it, I mean, you walk there today, you don't see a trace of the combat zone, except there are two strip clubs left. Over on LaGrange. On LaGrange. But in during this time, LaGrange was like, uh, people told me, the Wild West. So if you can picture up, there were a number of strip clubs on LaGrange. Uh, it was a place where most of the hookers would hang out in that area. But right up and down Washington Street, you had the Naked Eye, you had the Pilgrim Theater, you had the Piccadilly, um, you know, keep, keep going up, you hit more strip clubs, and in between there were dirty bookstores, and you're right on the edge of Chinatown, and you're right on the edge of Downtown Crossing, so you had all kinds of people walking through there, just people shopping, and then uh, as the day went on and the night came on, it became a scene, a different scene. Um, it was no, There was an aura of dangerousness there. Uh, I think that was something that drew a lot of people there. Certainly a lot of young men would go there, um, as someone told me, uh, he said young men would go there because they knew if they did, they'd have a story to last for a lifetime. It was an adventure. It was definitely an adventure, yeah. Uh, I remember, it wasn't even just young men. I worked, when I came to Boston in 79, don't tell anyone, <laughs> at Fridays, TGI Fridays, and not more than once, a bunch of people would go there, and it was men and women together. Yes. It was after work. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to maybe we're going to see a show at the Orpheum, and we'll, we'll pop down there for right. something exciting to do. Mm -hmm. So it was there was an aura of danger, right? And and actually, that's true because um, uh, used to be that men and women would go there, or bun bunches of people, college girls would go there, partly because their moms warned them about going there. So when they had the chance, they w they would go there, um, and it. But it's interesting because in my book I talked to a, a young man. Well, he was not so young now, but he was a young man. He worked in his father's uh, pizza place, uh, King of Pizza, which was right on the corner of Boylston and Washington Street. And he had some stories because the pizza place would close after th at 3 o'clock, 3 a.m. So that was uh, when the clubs would kind of uh, empty out and, the, and the, many of the people would come to have pizza. So he, began, he knew a lot of the people in the street who hung out there. Uh, it was, uh, I don't want to gl over glamorize it though. I, Jay, I really, I really don't want to make it seem like it was all fun and games and plasticize Las Vegas. It was a serious, dark. There were serious place. things going on there serious addiction, serious prostitution, uh, serious runaways who would hang out there. And um, I, I mean, I like to think of it as a, a place best viewed in the rearview mirror. Um, and yet, I'll tell you this, um, in doing my research, I happened on a website uh, put up by, or a kind of a blog, uh, a talk site for um, Universal Hub, 
And there are all these people sharing their memories about the combat zone. And they were uh, bartenders, they were hangers-on, there were um, dancers, lots of dancers. And they're all sharing their memories with the sense of glee and, wow, do you remember what it was like back then? I can't believe we lived through that, but we did. Um, the, the other thing about the combat zone is that, and this is one of its dirty little secrets, it was a big tourist draw. A lot of the city elders didn't want to move against it too directly because that's what brought conventions to Boston. Guys would, the guys would come into Boston, their wives would go off shopping, and they'd go to the uh, combat zone. Uh, I had a gentleman, he, he, he was, uh, worked as a, as a kid, he worked as a bellboy in one of the hotels up the way, and people would come up to him, and guys would come up to him and says, hey, do you know where I can get some action? And he would say, well, walk two blocks in that direction, turn left. And it'd be good for a twenty-five dollar tip. So really, yes, and, like and not only conventions, but it would bring guys in from Medford who would not have otherwise come here. Let's go into the combat zone and spend some money. Well, that was it. I mean, again, um, I found some really interesting people in the combat zone, and one of them was um, a woman named Regina Quinlan, sister Regina Quinlan, and she was a. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nun, who was a sister of St. Joseph, uh, she later left the religious order, and she became a lawyer. And she began to represent uh, a number of the dirty bookstores there. So if you can picture it, a former nun defending in court the First Amendment rights of people selling smut. Uh, but she was very passionate about that. And it is to this day. She's very passionate about the First Amendment rights. But one of the points she makes is that the people coming up and going to these bookstores were not monsters, were not... Um, kind of bizarre people from out of town, but they were the people from Medford or from Malden or from Sudbury coming in uh, and exercising their freedom of choice. And so she was very, very passionate about defending this. Um, sister, uh, uh, Ms. Quinlan actually became a judge later on uh, and uh, served a very distinguished career uh, on the bench. Uh, she's retired now. Uh, but she still is very passionate. She doesn't like anything about the combat zone. Don't misunderstand me. But she defends people's right, right to make their choices. First Amendment was much more of a thing, it seems, then than now. It was front and center more. I think it was at, at that point because people were trying to figure out where it went. I mean, you remember the Supreme Court's case where the judge was – they were trying to define pornography – Yep. And the judge says, I don't, I, yeah, go ahead. I'll let you, I, I I'll say, let you says, say I can't it. define it, but I know it when I see it. So, yeah. uh, and so that was one of the, that was one of the things we're going. Remember, this was kind of the sixties and the seventies. So the country was really changing. So um, that was a lot going. Barney Frank was really involved with this too. He was one of the people who testified in favor of putting up a combat zone, creating the zoning for this era. He, you know, at this time he was, um, he was actually pushing for legalized prostitution in this area, in that area of the city, and he still defends it. I, I got a chance to interview him for this book, and, and he still feels very pas uh, passionate about that. Um, but he did say he was also protecting his uh, Back Bay uh, 
the constituency he was a representative for Back Bay because they didn't want people driving through that area. So he was protecting a constituency and putting it in the downtown area. Inside the combat zone, Boston's most stripped down story. <laughs> the stripped down story of Boston's most uh, <laughs> notorious neighborhood. And author Stephanie Shoro is here. We're going to take a call from David in California. And then Stephanie's going to talk to us about the hierarchy that existed in the combat zone. So now it's David in California. That's pretty pretty vague. Where in California, David? Oh, hi, uh, um, uh, Jay. Yeah, I'm, I've called you a bunch. I'm uh, the guy in San Francisco. Okay, Dave. Yeah, good. Hi, David. Yeah, and we have a couple of areas that are kind of similar to what she's describing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was going to say, uh, I was in doing her research, I'm wondering if she's ever run into uh, uh, an old uh, musical called Street Scene. Street Scene? Uh, not really, but could tell tell me about it. Well, you remember um, Kurt Weill. Uh, yes. He wrote Mac the Knife. Yes, and he wrote yes. uh, Three Penny Opera and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt Weill, Langston Hughes, and um, oh, I'm trying to think of the third famous guy. Uh, all came up with, uh, I don't think it was Baldwin, uh, but it was uh, uh, Langston Hughes and, uh, and Kurt Weill. And it's, it was a piece about a, a town or a section of town, just like you're describing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, uh, you know, these struggling families with a bunch of kids uh, were living in miserable poverty in the middle of, of a street scene that was, uh, you know, gambling and, you know, passed out drunks on the street. And uh, so they tried to clean up the neighborhood, and it turned out that it was a convention center and uh, and the conventioneers had to have their gambling, otherwise they wouldn't even come to town. <laughs> That's so. Uh, yeah. So it, this the um, the libretto is about uh, exactly what you're describing. And uh, yeah, there were various uh, various cities with that: uh, Central West End down in Gaslight Square in St. Louis, and mm-hmm. of course uh, New Orleans is famous. Well, Car- uh, uh, what's her name? Go- Karen Dota or Carol Dota out in. Uh- the North Beach, right? And, yeah, yeah, the Condor, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, and David. Right across the street from the right across the street from the Condor is uh, City Lights Bookstore, which is Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who uh, was one of the famous people who uh, per, uh, was working on those uh, those lawsuits that you were talking about, the civil rights lawsuits of free speech. Yeah, he was very much and, wrong um, with the beat. I've been to City Lights. Yeah, it's a great bookstore. I I I, oh. I think it's closed now, right? Or is it still open? Oh no no! It's way it's jamming. It's uh, oh, great! Lord Isn't that a fantastic? Uh, Allen Ginsberg related type? Yeah, of- yeah. It was that was a very much the beat? Yeah, he was one of the people at the forefront. And yeah, there was uh, in a way that relates because uh, that the, there's a sense in the um, combat zone of being counterculture, really counterculture, being out there, being in a different world. And Thanks, that was David. Part of it. That's a uh, that's great. We do yeah. have a lot to cover, so I'll say mm-hmm. bye. But that was a good call, David. Thank you. Now the hierarchy that. Folks might not know existed in the combat zone and places like it. Well, it was interesting because you had the the dick girls, the dancers, the exotic dancers, the strippers, who uh, really were the engine that ran the whole combat zone, and they were uh, they made a lot of money, uh, and they uh, were considered sort of the the the, the top of the scale now. Within a patriarchy, let me put that in within the patriarchy of the combat zone. But there were also the hookers and the streetwalkers, the prostitutes who who uh, lived, who worked in that area. 
Uh, they were not necessarily the dancers. In fact, the clubs tried to keep uh, prostitutes out of the out of the clubs because it would they could be shut down. So the the dancers kind of were a, high, a step above the hookers. But then there was another phenomena in the combat zone, and that was the girls who stole wallets were expert pickpockets for the men who were in the combat zone. And these were the guys who would stumble out of the bars drunk, 2 a.m., and they'd have girls come up to them and say, hey, you want a party? You want to have a good time? Would you like a date? And uh, what they would do is just slip their hand into their pocket and take their wallet and just take off. And that was a very particular phenomenon there. And um, it got so bad that the prostitutes were complaining to the police about the pickpockets stealing their jobs um, and stealing their money. Uh, and once, Beckley, in, I think it was in November of 1974, uh, one of the cops who worked the beat down there described when they did a massive pickup of women who did this pickpocket scheme. In fact, he himself went out as a decoy, and he described that he had like a dummy wallet, and um, he said the girls were so good they could get the wallet out without him even noticing it. Uh, and so, uh, but what they did was they they rounded at a bunch of them all, all at once, and they sort of cleaned it up the area. But that was, um, the, the issue with these women who stole, stole wallets, that was the spark for the Andrew Popolo okay, murder. perfect. Go so, ahead. So the Andrew Popolo murder, which is what a lot of people in Boston remember about the Comet Zone. And, and Andy Popolo was a, well, first of all, he was from the North End. He grew up in the North End, uh, and so he was a native of Boston. And he went to Harvard. He was a football player for Harvard, but he was also a pre-med student. And he was uh, just about to, he was in his senior year, uh, and uh, but he played on the football team. And uh, as is tradition holds, uh, the last night of the season, the uh, what they call break, breaking training, the football players all went out to this fancy dinner in Beacon Hill, uh, had a big dinner, lots to eat. Where'd they go? Do you know? Uh, I, I, it's in the book somewhere. I don't all remember. Right. It, was a, it was like a club. It was like a... Like a gentleman's club. club. Like a, no, no, it wasn't a club. It was, it a, was a nice, club. like a food club. Yeah. But then they said, "Let's all go to the combat zone." Mm -hmm. And you know, today we'd go, "Oh my God!" But in, that was typical behavior in those days. The guys go to a combat, go to a strip club later on. So um, around midnight, I guess they headed down to the Naked Eye, and they had a went to the Naked Eye. They took over the stage because somebody knew someone who ran the the Naked Eye. So they were having a great time. I mean, these these. You can imagine Harvard students, football players, just the season's over with, having a great time. Well, all good things must come to an end, and closing time came around, and they, they were sent out uh, to go home. Um, and they had their car parked very near where the um, where the, you know, the strip club was, which to me is the most amazing thing that they found parking, because there's no parking there today. Right, right. Nothing. Anyway, so they were going back to their car and um, in, in sort of different groups. Uh, and a couple of young women went up and started to solicit the, the men and say, hey, you want to party? And um, the men, at least one particular man, was pretty drunk, and he was trying to lead the women on, and they were trying to lead him on. Uh, but finally, they, the women went off, and the men got this one guy into the car, and then he discovered his wallet was missing. And he decided, instead of leaving it, which he should have, he started to try to find and chase the women. Now, chase the women. Chase the women. Get it his wallet sounds back. Sounds bad, right there. Well, chased, he wanted to get his wallet back, and um, what happened is that the the guys found the women and they started to chase them, and then 
men from the neighborhood who were kind of keeping an eye on things rushed out and got in a confrontation with the Harvard players. Now, Harvard players were mostly white. Not all, but mostly white. The guys in the neighborhood were black and Hispanic, and a fight broke out between them. You know, get out of our neighborhood. Leave yep. the women alone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's the thing. Andy Popolo was not involved with this initial altercation. He was actually getting a slice of pizza. He was just hungry, so he's down the street. But then he heard the commotion, and as he's coming up, he could see that uh, there was a fight breaking out. And he was the type to sort of get involved. So he jumped in because he saw that one of his friends was getting pretty much beaten up by another guy. He jumped in, and at some point, one of the guys in the street pulled out a knife and stabbed Andy through the heart. And that kind of broke the fight up. He staggered back. They pulled people away. But Andy, uh, and Andy was rushed to the hospital, um, but he died, he died about a month later. He actually lived for quite a while. As he, they tried a to month later. Him. Yeah, it was a while later. Yeah, he, they they tried to keep him alive, and then he just he just he just gave up. Um, so the men they they arrested three men for what was ma- you know was for uh, assault at that point, and then it turned into a murder, and they prosecuted the men for murder one, which is um, which if you think there's a fight going on, I wouldn't think. I'm not a lawyer, but it doesn't seem all that premeditated to me. No, so that's it. It's they they had to go through a particular um, schematic of legal maneuvering to make it a murder one, um, and the three men were convicted, uh, sentenced to life in prison, basically, and then all three men, even the one who didn't stab Popolo. Then they had a retrial. And the men were all, one was convicted of manslaughter and the others were, were released, were found not guilty. So it was like the pendulum swung one way and then swung back the other way. But you've got to remember, again, this was in the 70s. And what was going on in the 70s in Boston? Busing and other things like that. So tensions were running really high. So, so race played a role in that whole thing. Race played a big role in this back, on bo- um, and sort of on, in both trials. Um, the, really, the real tragic thing is that Andy Popolo by all accounts, was uh, an upstanding young man um, who jumped in to help a friend. He was not the instigator. He was not the person who did this. He was not the one, the one who changed, chased the girls. Um, and so it's, it, it was ironic. That, but a lot of people say that was the beginning of the end. or that, A lot of people say that was the end of the combat zone. I would amend it. I would say it was the beginning of the end what of year the was combat that? zone. 1974. Really? Some, yeah. So, But the, it took a long time. That couldn't have been the end. If it, no, it was Maybe it was the, the beginning end. of the end, but the end took a long time, like a it decade. It took a long time to get well, there. Well, maybe six years, would you say? Six, well, eight it years? Went, let, me, let me check the dates on that again. Because That's all right. It was 70, 76, I'm sorry. I, I okay. dumped it down. 1976. So, the yeah, the combat zone had been, uh, had been zoned for two years at that time. So it was 1976. So the combat zone went on for a lot longer, but... People's memories remember, because they remember that case and they remember it as being so tragic, they think of it as the end. However, it was the beginning, it was definitely the end of the cooperation between the BRA and the strip clubs and our friend John Sloan, who I mentioned, because he'd been trying to work with these strip clubs to improve their image, um, create um, sort of, like I said, a, Disney, a Disneyland of sex kind of thing. Uh, but after that, there was no cooperation. They just said this was not supposed to happen. 
um, you, we can't we can't put up with this any longer. So at, from that point on, it was more of a war between the city and the owners of the strip clubs and the and the bookstores and the theaters there, the movie theaters there. But it took a long time. It took a long time. And in fact, a lot of people like to say that development came in and kicked those guys out. But the cops will tell you a different story. They'll say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, that wasn't that wasn't part of it." They'll say it was one thing in particular. And it's, ironically enough, it's something that has just been discontinued, and that's the VCR. Because the VCR came along, and all of a sudden you had pornography being taken from a public act. We had to go to a movie theater, see it, or go to a strip club, to taking the cassette, popping it into your own television in your own home, and send the kids to bed, get your wife, go into the den, and you can watch your own, you can have your own porn movie. And many people feel like that is the that is the uh, social change that really started to cut away at the at the combat zone because now you didn't have to go to a place for it. Then, of course, came the internet, right. and now the internet was uh, the ultimate playground for anything you want in terms of sex. Things like, uh, for a while, Craigslist ran escort ads, so um, prostitution moved away from the streets into into um, more of the internet escort services, things like that. So that changed. And then there was development. Menino, Mayor Menino, really wanted to get rid of the combat zone. So he did a lot of work to try to curtail it and do things with it. But really, it was the social changes of people's habits. Things are changing. No one gets any exercise. You used to at least get your exercise walking to the combat zone now. You didn't, you know, you get, now you don't get any exercise. You get zero exercise. You can just sit on the couch and do All that. All right, but. we still have to talk about Fanny Fox, Deborah Beckerman, and Princess Cheyenne, and more coming up with uh, our guest, Stephanie Shoro, inside the Combat Zone at WBZ. Jay talking. My, my, hey, hey. Hey, pay attention. I'm talking for a reason here. All night long with Bradley Jay. Bradley J, WBZ News Radio 1030. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. No voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies the all night long. You just have to listen. Bradley J's coming on strong. Jay talking. Bradley J. You're up next. It won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta talk as well. The hour is gone. News Radio 1030. BZ, Stephanie Sharo continues here on Jay Talking inside the combat zone. And we we have I don't know if we can get it all in before the top of the hour, and maybe you'll have to stay a little bit longer. Let's we gotta go to the Fanny Fox incident. <laughs> That's what you know. 
world famous incident, and you cover it in depth in your book. Here, it's got its own yeah. dedicated chapter. So yeah. take it away. It's my favorite story, really. I love telling the story because uh, it just has all the right elements of sex, politics, and scandal. So, um, so basically, uh, we have to put ourselves back in a time where politicians um, were a little bit treated a little better by the press than they are today. So. Wilbur Mills. Wilbur Mills was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. He uh, was probably one of the most powerful men in Congress at the time. Um, he had been in Congress for a very long time. He, rumors about him running for president. Uh, the Ways and Means Committee had, had a lot to do with purse strings, so he was untouchable. Uh, people would say, I never argue with God nor Wilbur Mills because he was so powerful. Well, one evening, um, uh, a car was weaving back and forth on the highway in uh, Washington, D.C. cop pulls it over, uh, finds um, some very inebriated people in it, including a young woman who promptly jumps out of the cop car and into the tidal basin, uh, which is the water in, the, uh, in, in that uh, Washington, D.C. area. And in the car was Wilbur Mills, who, again, three seats to the wind. It was a little unclear who was driving, but they had a hurry up and fish um, a woman out of the tidal basin. It turned out to be a woman whose stage name was Fanny Fox, and she was also known as the Argentine Firecracker. And so she was an exotic dancer, and she was hanging around with Mr. Mills. And, of course, they sit the paper, and the headlines were all over the country about Wilbur Mills um, hanging out with the stripper. And Wilbur Mills just explained it all and said he was he was just trying to help a constituent and that she was very talented and he was helping her as he would help any other person who asked him for assistance from the, his Congress. So uh, he explained it away and uh, Miss F uh, Fanny, for her point, just said, oh, Mr. Mills, and she always called him Mr. Mills. He's, he's just a real gentleman. He's really trying to help me out. And, you know, she and her husband were friends with his, he and his wife and so on and so forth. <clears throat> okay, that story held for a little while. Uh, and Wilbur Mills was reelected, no problem. Well, Fanny Fox found herself to be the object of great attention, and nothing is better for a stripper than notoriety, than headlines. So she found herself being booked all over the country, now being uh, billed as the Tidal Basin bombshell uh, and the Argentine firecracker, and she was booked into the Pilgrim Theater in Boston, Pilgrim Theater, uh, which has a long history of being a legitimate theater and then showing, showing movies, uh, dirty movies, and now being back into uh, showing uh, burlesque, the person who's running burlesque, and strippers. So she was booked for a couple weeks in Boston, uh, and a lot of press about this. Uh, and that was great. She was having a great time. And then all of a sudden, on one of her nights, she said, I want to introduce someone. I want to introduce you, the audience to someone here. Mr. Mills, Mr. Mills, would you please come out? And Mr. Mills wanders out on the stage of the Pilgrim Theater, none too sober, shakes the hand of his protege as people are clapping and, and, and looking and watching as his entire political career began to crumble because now uh, he would not be forgiven, uh, that this was considered a scandal. I mean, it's one thing to get caught, but twice to, get, to be still hanging around with the stripper while your wife's back at home in Arkansas. Uh, so his, he did not actually resign from Congress, but he did uh, choose not to run for re-election. He also confessed he was an uh, alcoholic. He went into AA. Uh, but that was really the end of his political career. Today, of course, he'd be president, but back in those days, um, it was a killer. Right. So it's not, not 
Completely unlike Stormy Daniels. Not completely, no. Because no one knew who she was, and then they did. Fanny Fox was the Stormy Daniels of her day. Um, and um, and like both of them, they're both trying to uh, ride their notoriety. Uh, Fanny Fox went on to write a book, uh, do some appearances, uh, and has I could not lock, track her down. I think she moved back to Argentina, uh, but I... She could be alive, but I could not find her. You did manage to track down some of the dancers, correct? Oh yes, oh, yes. I just talked to a number of them. A number of them. Um, the, one of my, my favorite was um, a woman who danced under the name of Julie Jordan, and uh, or, or she was also known as Miss Bicentennial yes. as well. Uh, and Julie Jordan was she was, just has a, such a great story because she was a nice Jewish girl, grew up in Brookline, and then was a hippie and was living in a teepee in the mountains in Colorado, came back didn't want to work as a waitress or a secretary. So she went to, and I think it was the mousetrap, one evening as a lark, and she ended up dancing that evening. um, And she got a job there, and she continued to dance. Um, So she danced one day at this notorious event for the Bicentennial in um, City Hall Plaza. Yeah. Did a patriotic strip. And you have a, a picture of it here. Yes, yes. All right, and we have some other dancers to talk about. Stephanie Shoro, Inside the Combat Zone, the stripped-down story of Boston's most notorious neighborhood. And this is not just for, for giggles. This is for real. This is a real social thing, a political thing. There's a lot involved here. It's a, it's a small book, but it's packed with goodness. Let's talk about some more. I didn't pay you to say that either. No. Thank you. No, no, no. I love it. The, I guess, uh, Princess Cheyenne, yeah. phenom. Mm-hmm. I only know her, well, I knew her because I used to work at WBCN and she worked there a very short time given, like, I think relationship advice. Yeah. She, she had a like show. Him. And I also, I since she was a co-worker and interesting, I hung around with her out, outside the job. She had a boyfriend at the time or something, so... You know, it was platonic, but it was, you know, cool to hang around. Hey, I'm hanging around with Princess Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you had a story there. Mm-hmm. She was always very nice, but I never knew her real story, and you do. So why don't you tell that story? Well, I, I think she's a bit of a mystery. I mean, she was called the thinking man stripper. That was her, how she was described to me. And I interviewed a lot of, I didn't get to interview her, so you have one up on me. I would have loved to have talked to her. She, We had some correspondence, but she kind of, uh, she declined. She wanted to put this part of her, the world, this part of her life behind her. But I talked to so many men whose eyes would just light up. They say, oh, Princess Cheyenne. And, and if you look at pictures of her, she's beautiful, but she isn't, she, she, she's not what you think of when you think of a stripper. I mean, she was, she was, she was apparently an, a fabulous dancer, really gay dancer, charisma. She, there's just something about her that seemed to um, get people really excited, and not not just not just excited in a sort of a sexual right. way, but just but just in a kind of like she was she was interesting to be around. It sounds like that's kind of your experience well, yeah. as well. I mean, maybe it's because we know her, but you feel like there's kind of a a, a twinkle in her eye that says there's something more there. Well, she was interesting. She came from a kind of a middle class background, and. Uh, went, uh, found her way into dancing. Um, she dated Cat Stevens, which oh, was yeah. one of the so things. So yeah. you just yeah. you just yeah. slid over, found her way to dancing. How yeah. how did that happen? Well, I think it was just again in that in those days, it, the 
choices for women were a little bit more limited, and I think she um, did it once or twice and then just got addicted to it. Uh, People do I it think. to earn money yeah. to go to school. I have a friend that is a stock broker oh, yeah. now oh, who yeah. did that to get through school. Well, I thought that was kind of a myth, but it's uh, it, but it is absolutely true. I talked to a woman. Uh, I talked to two people. I've actually talked to a woman who made her way through law school dancing, uh, but someone who I quoted in the book extensively um, used the money from stripping to um, go to graduate school, and she became a, a, a dean or a, a administrator, I think, over at Suffolk University. And I said, wasn't that weird? Didn't people recognize you? She said, yeah, they recognized me. But yeah, it was kind of accepted, and she's now a dean of humanities uh, at a at a University of Arkansas or something like that. Does she so, kind of sweep her past under the rug, or does she wear it proudly? She doesn't wear it proudly, but she doesn't sweep it under the rug because she wrote a book uh, <clears throat> about it. Um, she danced under the name Lolita, interestingly enough, uh, and she wrote a book about her experiences. Changed the names of everything. Uh, uh, Lori Lewin was the name that she wrote it under, um, and uh, she she has you know I we had a long talk about um, the the ramifications of it because she's a dean and I'm I'm very interested in a lot of these issues, but she came to the conclusion that dancing was sex work, even though as I said the dancers were not pulling tricks they were had a high status they made a lot of money. But she feels ultimately they were sex workers because it was all geared toward the male gaze. Now, Princess Cheyenne would not agree with that. Princess Cheyenne, for example, uh, often took umbrage and would write in when people described uh, the degrading um, situation at um, in the clubs. And she said, no, I had a great time. It was warm. It was full of life. I enjoyed it. In fact, she left the business. She retired, left it. She married, uh, I believe, a policeman. She was married for a while. And then uh, she went back to it. She, she wanted to go back to it. But she was, she apparently was able to set her own rules. I, uh, a lot of the women, for example, had to dance in high heels, and she could dance barefoot. Backing up a little bit, mm-hmm. the, 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 you, you mentioned the woman who said she felt dancing was sex work because yeah. it was geared to the male gaze. Well, that's right. a pretty slippery slope. It is. That would mean that wearing stuff that people wear all the time on the street is sex work because it's all geared to the male gaze. It's where do you, it is where a do you slip- draw exactly. that line? It is a slippery slope. And I won't I won't try to um get away from the fact that it's very hard to define it because I had uh feelings like that when I'm writing this book, I'm writing and I'm talking to women, some of whom had really interesting times dancing. Uh and yet I I, I had real problems dealing with it myself, thinking about it. And um a lot of these women felt they were their own agents, but at the same time, they weren't making the most money. The clubs were raking in the money, and they weren't make—they weren't necessarily raking it in on the dancing. They're raking it on the drinks. The drinks. And here's the thing about that. Here's the thing about this: this the male gaze issue. One of the jobs of the dancers was not just to dance, was to mingle or mix with customers. They had to go out into the crowds, ask guys, "Hey, would you like to buy me a drink?" And I'll sit and talk with you, basically. So the uh, guy would buy them this overpriced drink, and they'd sit oh, yeah. and talk to them. 15 bucks. They had quotas. They had to make their quota. If they didn't make their quota, they wouldn't get any money for it. So is that sex work or is that booze work? <laughs> it's not well, really sex work. It's not. Well, think about it. You have to That's dress up. marketing alcohol. 
you have it's marketing <laughs> alcohol, but sit, think of what what you have to do to do it. First of all, the women would get watered down drinks, so they didn't have to drink so much. But they had to sit there and talk to guys, make them feel good about themselves in some way. And get them to buy drinks. In fact, they would push them to buy these $50 bottles of champagne. Yep. Still, so. I mean, two people talking. I could, I feel like I could still make the case that's more alcohol work than sex work. Well, I, I hear you on that. However, I I would think that uh, if you were a woman, you would have trouble doing it and not get blow up some of the guys. What, what about lap dances? Do they have to do that? Oh, and they didn't do anything like that. Not in the day. No, no. They, they, may, they do that now, but no. Back in the high, uh, the height of the combat zone, the women, first of all, this is where it gets on that really slippery slope, wore sumptuous dresses. They had amazingly elaborate outfits, gorgeous, beautiful dresses, some um, designed by specific designers who were just who designed for strippers. So they would come out, they would um, take off a piece of clothing with each song that they did. They were on long stages. There was no tipping. There was none of this um, um, slipping... Uh, money into G-strings. You couldn't touch the dancers, could not touch the dancers. It was not allowed. So they didn't make money off of trips. They made money off their salaries, and they made their quota from the drinks. So it was an entirely different situation than it is now. Uh, for By the way, for research purposes, I did go to the two uh, strip clubs around LaGrange, the um, the Glass Slipper and um, the the other one. Uh, what's it called? Scores? No. Uh Somebody centerfold, Centerfold. So I, I try, right, right. I'm trying to block these things out, but I went right. to Centerfolds and the, um, but the glass slipper is interesting because it's been around for 30 years. I mean, it, it, it almost should have its own um, historical marker on the side of it. Uh, but the Centerfolds was interesting because um, they there's very little strip. There's very little, the strip tees. There's very little tees. They come out with with barely anything on and get down to nothing on. Writhe around, do the, they call floor work, which is they writhe around the stage. Um, guys are throwing money at them. They have to scoop the money up. Um, and But I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> Not even the sight of a writhing naked woman on a stage will keep a man from looking at a cell phone. <laughs> it's just, that's sad. It's just sad. <laughs> so, um, so that's it. But, but I, I hear what you're saying. And, and believe me, I have gone back and forth in my own mind about this. And I think back in the day... Back in the uh, day of the combat zone, it was probably easier to make the case it was not sex work because of the glamour that was associated with, uh, and the fact that the women could um, had ha- could demand like having their own music and their own g- had gimmicks. There's a woman who danced with the boa constrictor for God's sake, and she said she said that was easy. She's been dealing with reptiles all her life, so it was. Uh, there was a lot of that gimmick, a sort of gypsy-like attitude. You talked about, about a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You know who's really low on the totem pole? Strip club DJs. They are really. <laughs> are they really? I, for yeah. one, t- one, I decided I wanted to experience that. Mm-hmm. And so, folks, you don't know this, but I, I wanted to see what it was like. Right. And there's a place on Route 1, inbound, on the right, I can't remember what it is. It's just this brick building set that's nasty. It's not the squire. That's that's another one. That's a different yeah, that's in some place. Yeah. It was awful. Uh the dances were mean. They, golden, were, but they were mean to me. Oh really? were, yeah. You know, they were like, play this, play this. <laughs> and I it's not at all like I had hoped. You're not only are you the DJ, but you're part time you're kind of like a 
a barback too. Not a barback, but one thing you have to do as DJ is take all the ones they get. Say, take these ones and go change them with the bartender. Wow. All kinds of stuff like that. Wow. I did it one day. Horrific thing. Like eight hours long. I work only for tips and got nothing because they didn't know me. They didn't like me. It was just a really bad thing. Well, in my table of hierarchy, I'm going to have to put a spot for DJs, strip yeah. club DJs. We're probably yeah. like a little bit above the pickpockets. <laughs> and there is a, uh, you mentioned Robin. There's also a uh, Deborah Beckman, Beckerman. Deborah Beckerman. You can tell yeah. me about Deborah Beckerman. Ah, Deborah. This, she's, she, well, she was a PR spokesperson for the combat zone. And she had actually been working as a, in PR for the hospitals and for um, other uh, kind of PR is a PR all-purpose PR person, um, and she was uh, taken to a strip club one night by her boyfriend at the time, Jack Kelly, who was uh, later killed in the uh, Blackfriars massacre. Uh, and he was a he was a Boston uh, reporter. TV reporter, yeah. But she was say she he he knew everybody, so he was introduced to the owner. And she was saying, "What you guys need is a good PR person," and he said, "Okay, I'll hire you," and basically hired her. And so she was the person who would talk to the press. She worked very closely with John Sloan. And she was one of these people who was trying to um, create a better image for the combat zone. Is saying, look, it's not as bad as you think it is. Come down, see what it's like. Really? As a so matter, she tried to put lipstick on that whole thing, so she, to speak. She exactly, well, that's what PR does. She did that. And she even took a group of junior league women, women from the junior league, down to the two o'clock lounge to watch a strip show. Hmm. So she described good, now, just good, clean fun. Good, clean fun, exactly. <laughs> except that, except that, the people who I think I mentioned, the people who ran a lot of people who ran the uh, combat zone clubs were mob connected or were not very nice. Later people. on, later on, or at parts, they kind of hide who's who owns what. But Deborah Beckerman felt. Once they got the law passed, once they got the zoning passed, the people decided they really didn't need a PR spokesperson anymore. And she felt she had to disappear and got out of town because, as she told me later, she didn't know what she knew. She may have known things that she didn't even know that she knew. She didn't know that she knew. That she shouldn't know. Yeah. And so at the time, I was trying to reach – here's an interesting story. I was trying to reach her for the book. I couldn't, couldn't reach her, couldn't reach her. I thought she, in fact, people said she was dead or there was something like that. Well, um, six months or no, but a year after the book was out, she gives me a call. I get in touch with her and we have a long talk. And she tells me this amazing, she sort of fills in the gaps about what happened. Uh, but apparently she's, she went on to a very nice life in PR. She was, she was living in Hawaii and in Las Vegas. Uh, but she remembers that uh, combat zone period, again, with this sort of mixed feelings. It was kind of cool. It was kind of fun. But... You know, at the end, I had, a, I had a run for my life to get out of there um, because she had a daughter and there, I, a lot of things that I want to get into. But but she did the most amazing work as a PR spokesperson. She was the person who was always taking the calls of reporters, always the one to be there to say, hey, look at it this way, which is what a good PR person does. There's a lot more to the combat zone than you knew. You, you know a little bit more now, but not all of it. And you can find out all of it in this book, Inside the Combat Zone. The stripped-down story of Boston's most notorious neighborhood. Stephanie, thank you very much. Stephanie Shoro. Again, you can get it on Amazon, but get it in the store if you can, because it's two reasons. 
Well, no, one reason. It's cool to go in a store. We love bookstores. Right. And you might, it's probably been a while since you've been in one. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. This well, has been great. Oh, yeah. And you have other books like Fires in Boston, and we'll get to all those, okay? That'd be great. Good. I appreciate Fantastic. it. Fantastic. New regular guest. Yay. Let's break. It's WBZ. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.